I entirely put that pressure on myself. Mm. I honestly think I wanted it more than most kids. And so like, I I, I was a nerd. Mm-hmm. I studied, I was not uh, getting the girls. I was I was getting the grades. Yeah. <laughs> what they do? <laughs> There's a lot of those that would have preferred to kind of be in your shoes now in life, right? So a little behind the scenes insights for our listeners out there. The audio footage you're about to hear was supposed to be sort of a rehearsal day with Scott and myself in the studio. We were going to just try out the gear, test out some of the audio stuff, maybe break a couple things and just play around. But once I listened back to everything, I was in complete shock, like awe. The sounds and rich textures I was hearing went straight through my nervous system and right into my soul. It was a voice, his voice ethereal, godlike even. I have never heard a tone so sweet in my life. And then I just closed my eyes and continued to digest the cadence of his words. It became increasingly clear that we potentially have a voiceover legend on staff right here at Hennessy Digital just waiting to be heard. And I... Sensing his greatness was hearing something amazing blossom in real time. So I went back to my producers and my audio guy, Josh, and said, Hey, are you guys hearing what I'm hearing? Do you feel what I feel? And there was a resounding, Yeah, man, we do. And so it was done. Scott Schramm would return to the studio to finish the epic episode that he started. I just had to hear those vocals again on these high-performing mics. The world they deserve to know. So ladies and gentlemen, back by popular demand, Scott Shrum in the flesh with us at Hennessy Studios. Scott Shrum, although it wasn't too smart when he walked into the class here in our uh, studio room. So tell me a little bit about how that happened. Yeah, that was very on brand for me. I was uh, just putting some of my stuff down and said, oh, I got to run back out a second. Did a 180, bang, right into the plate glass. And that's your nose, a, I saw your a, lip mark on there. Yeah, and yeah. Mark oh, I left there. a, yeah, definitely left a mark on the glass. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, later on, I got to go to the bathroom, see if it left a mark on me, but I feel okay right now. So for those that don't know that are listening, we're going to go back, back to like childhood days. But first, tell me a little bit about what your world looks like now, professionally, personally. Yeah. So, um, well, you know, but I'm president and COO at Hennessy Digital. I've been on this ride with you for a little over two years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that time, gosh, when, when I started, what do we have? Like 50 some people. Now we've got uh, about 130 people. We lease this space. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got uh, so much going on and it's crazy. And I remember when I first got on board and saw everything that we were doing. First of all, I was impressed. Second, I was terrified and said, holy crap, we need a CFO. I think I know <laughs> just the person. And brought uh, Michelle Patrick on uh, to join us in, in the adventure. Um, and then since then, uh, I brought together a couple of my other old man mates from my last job, including Blynn and, and Alex Trenchard-Smith. And you brought on uh, some people from your uh past adventures, including Matt, Brian, yeah, Brian. Yep. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's been an amazing ride so far. And, uh, just even what we're doing right now, you know, a couple of years ago, true fact, tomorrow, it'll be two years to the day since I first 
visited the space with Josh Bernstein, who uh, showed us this space. It was July 1st of 2019. And and if you told me that it's exactly two years later, we'd be sitting here doing this right now, I, I wouldn't even be able to envision it. So it's been two years since you stepped foot into this space, right? Yeah. Um, and that was a pretty interesting uh, time because we didn't know that there was going to be this pandemic, right? We needed a space. Um, this was the first space. It seemed like it was perfect, but it wasn't available. Yeah. And it seemed like everything else that we looked at felt more like an insurance company on 18th yeah. floor. And so we landed here in uh, the Television Academy campus. Yeah. And so here we are two years later and we're making this happen. So thank yeah. you. you. You are the reason why we're here. Oh, thanks. And I remember, so we, we fell in love with this space and they said, great you should know that somebody just put an offer on it. We were like, ah. Oh. So that was like July, August of 2019. And then I remember we spent the next several months looking, right? Like every every few weeks we'd go out with Josh and look at spaces. And like you said, yeah, we look at other ones. We're like, oh, this, I don't know, this is okay. I don't know, I don't love it. Uh, and the one probably that we got closest with was, was basically the next building over at 5250 Lancashire. Remember the space that used mm -hmm. to be the... Um, the Institute for the Arts, and they were just about to tear that down. And we were, th there was a lot that we liked about that space. I think we liked this better, but we liked it. And we were getting close. And then suddenly we got the call, hey, 5200 Lancashire, that fell through. Are you guys still interested? We were like, oh my God. The funny story about that is for those that are listening, when we went over to that, it was uh, like an old educational, what was the name uh, of the Art Institute. The Art Institute, yeah. right? And so they, they're like, well, what do you envision this look like? And I'm like, I don't really know. Like, you know, and we kind of, I'm like, let's, Scott, come here. Let's peek in. Let's see what's going on. Right. And then there was like a studio. Right. And it was like exactly what we needed. But they're like, well, if you want it to look like this, you got to let us know tomorrow because this thing's getting like knocked down and demoed. Yeah. There was like rubble everywhere. Yeah. It was like in the center of the building. So there was no natural light. There was no power. And we're like lighting our way with our phones. We're like, oh my God, a recording <laughs> studio. This is amazing. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, this is getting torn out tomorrow <laughs> it, it had everything that um, we needed in there but we yeah we did like that space but but it this was even better and mm -hmm. then this opened up uh that was late 2019 yeah and then two years later here we are and uh you know for the past year obviously we haven't been able to kind of get in here but i think it's been on schedule anyway it could have gone a lot worse yeah we signed that that lease literally weeks, several weeks before the world shut down. And at that moment, I was terrified. I was like, oh my God. I was like, what do we do? But it, but it's worked out. So tell me a little bit about, that's the professional side. Let's hear a little bit more about uh, personal side. Let's see. Well, I'll start with the present. So um, happily married with two kids. My wife, Anita, uh, is an actuary. She works out of our, she was working out of our home way before it was cool, mm -hmm. way before Hennessy Digital even existed. Uh, she's been with that company uh, since the late 90s. How's wow. that for <laughs> longevity, right? Talk about loyalty. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, so we relocated from Chicago to Southern California in 2008 when I took a job. And her company didn't want to lose her. So they're like, well, we'll set you up in the home office wherever. So she got set up with a home office at our home in Westlake Village. And that's where she still works, hmm. out of her home office. Um, when we moved in 2008, we had a, a one-year-old daughter named Diana. She's now 14. She starts uh, high school uh, in a, a matter of weeks, with yeah. less than two months. And we have an 11-year-old named Eleanor who starts uh, sixth grade in the fall. So it's a big transitionary yeah. year, huh? Yeah, it's a big, mm -hmm. big change of a year. But um, they're both they're both so brilliant and funny and and 
they're good people. Like they're mm-hmm. more than anything they're I can just tell they're going to grow up to be good people. Like they, they don't know if you ask them what they want to do when they grow up, they don't know yet. And that's, that's just fine. But they're, they're so bright and they're just such good conscientious people, both of them. Well, that's a testament to obviously the parents, the grandparents, yeah. right? Your childhood, yeah. your wife's childhood, right? How you guys were brought up. Um, so, you know, I guess that doesn't surprise me. I want to go back to young Scott, right? Um, when you were uh, growing up. So you grew up in New Jersey? Grew up in New Jersey, yep. Okay. Just me and my mom and my dad. I was an only child. Okay. Well, you, did you have grandparents that lived close um, by? or? Uh, so my dad's uh, parents lived in Western Pennsylvania where my dad grew up. So my dad grew up in, he was born in a town called Roscoe, Pennsylvania, and then then the family a little later moved really the next town over called California, Pennsylvania. It's right along the Monongahela River, about an hour south of Pittsburgh. And and so my, my grandparents still lived there. Um, and my mom's my mom, my mom's dead, father passed away before I was born, but my mom's uh, mom and and her new, um, you nowadays you would call him a partner. That that what that word they were like a long term couple, okay. but they weren't married. married. My mm-hmm. grandmother and my my we call I called him Uncle Gene, uh, lived in Northern Virginia, so I would see them, you know, at least a couple times a year. But um, but in New Jersey, it was me, my mom, my dad, and I had some aunts and uncles and cousins kind of scattered around. What did your mom and dad do for a living? So my dad worked in a steel mill. He was a uh, like a plant manager at a company that made um, steel tubing. Okay. Uh, and then when I was about 11, he he moved to another job, just another company that did something similar. Uh, they made copper rod, right, in yeah. Port Newark. Uh, and he was the plant manager for this company that made copper rod called Amrod hmm. for, for my whole life. Like he came in very much like as like an entry level maintenance job and then worked his way up to literally running the plant. He didn't go to college. Didn't go uh, to college. Okay. He didn't go to college. He, he uh, joined the army when he was 17, right out of high school in Western Pennsylvania, ended up serving in Korea. Hmm. Uh, my dad was brilliant, but never, never went to college, but he was, um, his job in the army in Korea was um, doing maintenance on nuclear bombs. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about a scary, responsible job, huh? Yeah. Self-taught, and then they trained him and everything. But yeah, that's what he did. When he got out of the Army, he ended up uh, working different maintenance jobs, ended up getting into manufacturing, and that's what he did. My mom, when I was young, she was a stay-at-home mom. And then um, when I was a little older and I was kind of, you know, I was in school and I was self-sufficient, she she worked in a bank for a while as a bank teller. She was there for a few years. And then... um, the job that she had for by the time I was a teenager and she was there for, I think, like 15 years, she was a secretary at a prison hmm. in the New Jersey Department of Corrections. So that's what she did. So uh, where we lived in New Jersey was a kind of rural town called Annandale. It's sort of not Annandale in the town adjacent to it, um, Clinton, New Jersey. They're known for there's a minimum security men's prison and a maximum security women's prison. Huh. <laughs> My mom worked in the the easier one, the, the minimum security men's prison. It was so minimum security, there weren't even fences. So, so like, your dad's dealing with nuclear bombs while your mom is dealing with prisoners. Well, yeah, that prisoner. was in the army. Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, but I mean, this was minimum security. They didn't even okay. have fences. I so see. like an escape would be a guy just like 
walked away and got in a car and took off. <laughs> but, um, so yeah, that's that was her job until she retired. And so as growing up as an, as an only child, what did you think you wanted to do? Like, what was your dream? Like when people yeah. ask you, what do you want to do when you grow up? I, when I was young, probably like a lot of kids, I was way into space and I was like, I'm going to be an astronaut. Like mm -hmm. I was hell bent on being an astronaut. Uh, let's see what this would have been summer after my, uh, in summer after eighth grade, I even went to space camp in Huntsville, Alabama. Um, so I was like, I was all about space camp. Like when I got there at space camp, I didn't know it, but the first thing you do is you took a written test. They didn't tell you that ahead of time. I took a written test. I got the highest score. So I got to be the commander of the mission huh. of the shuttle mission, wow. which was really cool. I was hell bent on being an astronaut. And then in high school, I was all, I was primarily math, science, math, science. My plan was I was going to go to the air force academy. Okay. Um, but when I was a sophomore in high school, um, I broke my foot really bad. It was this accident happened at high school. Uh, this was sophomore year. We were in gym class one day, and if you remember, like they had the volleyball nets to be held up by, by these cement poles blocks, right? Almost that just had these huge. I think it was like a big metal steel base yep. that was on two wheels, so you could like tilt the pole and like roll the whole thing around. Mm -hmm. Teacher asked me and these two other guys to go move the the poles around. And this kid, Brian Whitmer, tilts the pole back. He's, he didn't do anything wrong. He tilts the pole back to move it, but the pole uh, and the base were not attached to each other. There was a pin that was missing, and the base came off of the pole, crushed my foot. Oh, my left foot, right foot? My right foot. Your right foot. And um, uh, so I had to go to the emergency room. You can still to, feel uh, that pain from that day, right? Yeah, well, oh. I had to immediately, like, one second later, I had to rip off my my uh, sneaker because my foot just expanded sure. to like five times its size. Of course, yeah. Um, long story short, I had to have two surgeries. I was on crutches and in a cast for months. Uh, I had to do months of physical rehabilitation. That injury is what kept me out of uh, the Air Force Academy. I got to, I got recommended by my senator, which is kind of like the main step. Of course, yeah. And um, Senator Bill Bradley in New Jersey, I got recommended by his office. That's kind of the main thing. But um, I got a call saying, hey, uh, so I have some bad news. And I, as soon as uh, the call came in, I knew what they were going to say. It's like, hey, yeah, you're, that injury, your foot, we, you're disqualified. We can't accept you. So I knew. So, <clears throat> But I wasn't like devastated because I kind of figured that was going to happen. Because there is so much physical yeah. activity that takes place at the academy. and Right, yeah. Even if my long term at the Air Force Academy, maybe I'd go into the Air Force and end up being like an intelligence analyst still to, to make it through the academy. They're like, you're not, you're deemed physically unfit because of your foot. Hmm. So that was it. So I didn't get in. Um, so I was like, all right, plan B. But before we get into the plan B, right, okay. let's, let's take a step back. So as a kid, you wanted to be an astronaut, right? But, um, you obviously had a gift in school, right? Like when did you kind of pick up on like, Hey, you know, I, I might be smart. <laughs> like I might have a, a gift here in school. So I'll tell you a funny story. So when I was, uh, when I was eight years old, my family, we actually moved to, to another part of New Jersey, but up until I was a, up until the middle of third grade, <clears throat> we lived in a town called Plainfield, which wasn't like the greatest town. Mm -hmm. So my parents sent me to Catholic school just because it was better than the, the public school. Okay. So I was going to Catholic school and every year, um, basically there were families that would donate a lot of money to Catholic school. So their kids would always get put in the, this, like the advanced group 
we didn't have a lot of money and we weren't poor, but we didn't yeah. like donate excess money to the school. So they'd always put me in the, the middle group, not the advanced not group. Not the advanced group, okay. And two weeks into the school year, the teacher would say, why aren't you in the advanced group? Like, I don't understand, like what, what the heck happened with you? So then they would move me. And after this happened like two or three times, I realized like, huh, there's something about the system that is is um, trying to like keep me down. Wow! But the teacher, thankfully, is recognizing like, hey, you're you're advanced. Like, what's going on here? We got to move you ahead. Huh? And I'd end up being like, like the, you know, getting the best grades in the class. So like, even like, and when I by the time I was in third grade, I realized, like, they keep kind of pointing me out as like, you're you shouldn't be here. You're advanced. Um, and that kind of just became like a a, a running theme. Everybody's different, right? You know, but for me, I would have to study index cards, uh, memorization, you know, even writing things on my hand, you know. (laughs) (laughs) School didn't come naturally for me. Um, Like, did you have to study real hard? I studied hard. I did. did. I did study. Um, and, And I think that's something that, you know, how when you learn about great athletes, it's like, hey, LeBron James isn't just great because he's, gifted. Like the guy also puts in more work than anybody. Sure. I think, you know, especially thinking of like high school, I would say elementary school, middle school weren't particularly hard for me. But by the time I got to high school, just being honest, I think I wanted it more than, than other kids. Like I was, I, I put in the time, like Mm -hmm. I really did. And, um, my parents were, it wasn't the pressure you hear about like tiger moms of or something course. who would yeah. kind of pressure their kids. Mm-hmm. It was me. The pressure came entirely from me. And in fact, my parents would even, they didn't tell me this till I was an adult, but like my dad was sort of worried, like, you know, he should be like out with girls more and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, because like I would probably say to say that 80% of the Valor Victorians that you hear about, the parents put all yeah. the pressure yeah. on them, right? So for you to kind of have that self-accountability at such a young age. I entirely put that pressure on myself. Hmm. And so I, I honestly think I wanted it more than most kids. And so like I I, I was a nerd. Mm-hmm. I studied. I was not uh, getting the girls. I was I was getting the grades. Yeah. <laughs> what did they do? <laughs> There's a lot of those that would have preferred to kind of be in your shoes now in life, yeah. right? So it's your senior year. Mm-hmm. Right. It's probably a race to be the valedictorian. Did you know that there was somebody that was going to have... Have I told you this story? No, I haven't heard this story. It's not the race that you're picturing. So this is true. My freshman year, I learned that, oh, at graduation, when you're at the end of senior year, the valedictorian and the salutatorian, number two, give a speech. They each give a speech. I ain't doing that. that So I called my shot and I was like, I want to come in third. (laughs) You told them that? that? Seriously? I, I mean, I just said to my friends. Like, I didn't, like, it's not like I told the teacher. Uh, I see. But I was like, I am not giving a speech. Oh, my God. Because that terrified me. I'm a lot more comfortable public speaking now. But the 16, 17-year-old Scott didn't want to hear about giving a speech at the graduation. The last week of senior year, um, they did, it just took a while for them to tabulate the grades and this and that. So they told the top five-ish of us, hey, start thinking about what speech you might give, you're not going to know until like 48 hours before graduation, you might have to give a speech. And like, oh no, oh my God, I was terrified, right? So I, I, so I didn't even lift a finger towards writing a speech because I was like in denial. I didn't want to do it. And then uh, like the, I think it ended up being the day before graduation, they came out and they're like, all right, here's the rankings. And like Scott, you know, they sit me down, you know, 
you won't be giving a speech. You, you came in third, but when I say you're, you're, I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. And I was already in college at this, at, like I'd already gone in the MIT. So I didn't give, give a shit. Like I was like, yeah, it didn't matter. So right? um, I came in third, which is what 14 year old Scott predicted. And <laughs> see, go figure. And I didn't have to give a speech. So the fear of public speaking, they say that, uh, you know, most people would rather uh, uh, be in the casket than give the eulogy yeah. <laughs> at a funeral, yeah. right? It is. It's My wife is definitely afraid of speaking in front of people. That group, we'd all gotten into college. So, like, I don't mm. know. I'm trying to remember if any of us really cared what our didn't rank matter. was. We kind of didn't care at that point. I didn't. Yeah, I think I was, we had a class of, like, 900, maybe oh 1100. God. It's small, right? Um, and I was like 792. Oh, in that's class. a big class. Mine was tiny. So my high school class was only 290. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I we was, were tiny. I was definitely, uh, uh, but then again, I, I, I guess if I would have tried a little bit harder, um, I certainly didn't have uh, the natural ability. I had to work real hard in school. You didn't necessarily have the aptitude for the stuff that school wanted you to do. No. Right. That's but right. You, yeah. Mm -hmm. but, but in the real world, you've got more of the aptitude that That's matters. Right. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. yeah. So you, you applied to how many schools? Um, I only, I applied to two, MIT and Caltech. And what made you decide those two? At the time I was like all math and engineering. Um, because I was an only child, I was very close to my parents, but there was no way in hell I was going to go to college close enough that my parents could come visit every weekend. Mm -hmm. So it needed to at least be a few hours away. So MIT was like a like a five, six hour drive. Caltech was obviously on the other side of the country. It's uh, in Pasadena. Um, my parents indulged me. I said, I want to I want to go look at Caltech. So we flew out the spring break of, I think, my junior year of high school. Yeah, it was spring of 92. We flew out here and we looked at Caltech and we looked at Harvey Mudd College, which is out in uh, Pomona, uh, the Claremont McKenna Colleges. And um, I, Caltech was awesome. That was cool. And then I went and visited MIT. Um, Caltech's campus is beautiful, by the way. MIT's campus is not beautiful. Yeah. Um, but across the river from MIT was Boston, which is like a you know, cool, like the greatest college. It's like a real city, but it's also, there's like countless colleges in, in the area. Mm -hmm. So we walked around MIT for an hour and I was like, yeah, this will do. I like this. Let's go across the river. I want to go look at Boston. I mean, we went and like just did everything <laughs> in Boston, ate seafood, went to a baseball game, blah, blah, blah. And that was it. So when I say I only applied to two colleges, it's less daring than it sounds because I applied early to MIT and got in early. So like by December, I got into MIT of my senior year. Hmm. That took the, all the pressure off. And then I applied to Caltech because I was still interested. And I got into Caltech, but it, I had kind of already made up my mind that I was going to go to MIT. So now when you were applying to MIT, right? So for those that are listening, probably know that MIT, it's like the top 1% of the top 1%, right? It's like extremely hard um, to get into that school. Was there any doubt that you might not get into that school? Oh, I didn't know if I'd get in. I didn't, I was the first in my family to go to college. Like I didn't hmm. know, like when we went and visited MIT, we didn't even know how to properly do a, a college visit. Like we didn't contact the admissions office. We just like showed up. It was spring break at Caltech and we just walked into the admissions office and my parents said, all right, here's our son. He wants to go to Caltech. And and to their credit, the people, the admissions people at Caltech uh, were the nicest People, the associate dean admission sat down with me for like a half hour and got to know me. I mean, you know, they could have just chased us out and mm -hmm. said, get the hell out of here. We, I had no idea what I was doing. 
So uh, the day that you, I'm sure you remember this day very clearly, yeah. um, you know, you, you, you got something in the mail and it was either going to mm -hmm. be a good message or a bad message. Right. And so walk me through that. So did yeah. mom get the envelope? Did dad, so, how did that happen? Um, so our mail would typically come in the early afternoon okay. and, um, this, I remember it was the first week of December of my senior year and um, I had sports practice after school. So I would, when, the week when I knew the letter would be coming, every day after school, I drove home from school just to check the mail and mm -hmm. see and be no letter. Like, and I had to like hustle back to school for, for practice. Did that like three or four days in a row, no letter. And then one day I either I'd stopped bothering or I, I couldn't, I just didn't have time to run back home. Of course, that's the day the letter comes. So right before practice starts, I uh, I remember I was at a payphone at North Hunter in high school, dropped a dime in, called home. Hey, mom. She's like, it's here. There's a letter from MIT. I'm like, what is it? Is it big? Is it? She's like, it's little. I'm like, oh, shit. Uh -oh. Um, <laughs> she's like, Do you want me to open it? I said, open it. Uh, wow. So mom opened mom it. Mom opened okay. it. I'm on a payphone at school and she starts reading, you know, like the first five words and you're like, oh my God, I got Whoa. it. I got it. So, and then like, I just went back to, I w walked into practice and, um, and this kid, Jeremy Gasper standing next to me, he's like, Hey, are you okay? Cause I just was like, <laughs> in a daze. He's like, what? Hey, what's going on? I just got into college. And, <laughs> and, then, and then everybody like, started celebrating but wow like, but i just was like i didn't like it, it it was just sort of hitting me and i just was like all kind of freaked out such a big moment and you know i guess at that point right obviously mom's proud right and then dad gets the phone call probably he was uh that would have been the time he was like driving home from work at the He's time so he probably work, he probably right? got home like within an hour and found out yeah and he must have yeah. been, you know, obviously the parents must have been very proud, but yeah. then, then, uh, you know, then the expenses come like, whoa, how are we going to afford this? Right. And yeah. So, well, that's when my volleyball that's scholarship, when the volleyball scholarship came in. <laughs> and I'll talk yeah. about that. I don't mind. Yeah. Part of the reason for wanting to go to the Air Force Academy is that the, the military academies are free, all, you know, tuition paid. You don't pay a dime. That was part of the appeal. Um, but my parents, to, to their credit, said, get into the best college you can get into. We'll figure it out. Like, we will figure out how to pay for it. Hmm. You're not going to not go to a college like MIT because we can't afford it. So when I broke my foot, I was in the hospital having surgery on my foot. And um, there was a teacher. One of my high school teachers happened to be there because his wife, I think, was having some procedure done. So he came and visited me. And I was the first person who told, it was a teacher at school. He's like, you should sue. Like all the, we're all like in the faculty lounge, we're all talking about it. Like they, unbelievable what happened. Like you should sue. Hmm. And and I was like, oh no, I don't want to sue. I don't want to like get in trouble. I, you know, I just like, it was intimidating. My parents were like, oh, we don't, I don't know. So we just kept talking to me and everybody, people at the school are like urging me to sue. So we ended up going, we just opened a, you know, how's this for SEO, right? There's no, Internet, yeah. We just opened a phone book and uh, found the first lawyer with the magnet on the back, right? Yeah. <laughs> with a, we mm -hmm. just found a, a listing. This guy sounds good, John Coyle in Phillipsburg, New Jersey. There it is. We actually we interviewed um, three different law firms. They were like the local big firms, so like we weren't getting like the main. You know, it's like 
you're not getting John Foy. You're of getting one not. of his minions, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And so we weren't, we didn't like that. And then we went to another one and the guy seemed a little too bookish. Like we wanted somebody who was kind of like an aggressive bulldog. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? So the second guy seemed a little more like a law school professor than so. The third guy was like, yeah, after school, we're going to sue them. We're going to sue the manufacturer. <laughs> sue we're going to take down their insurance company. I'm like, you're hired. So that was, the injury happened in, um, uh, early 1991, this case didn't settle till uh, summer of 1993 when I was already out of high school. I see. Um, but then we we settled, and, and but we knew the settlement was probably coming because the negotiations were happening for probably the better part of a year. Sure, sure. Uh, we had to go to court. I had to sit on the stand and like talk to the and... to the judge, and mm-hmm. because I was a minor, I had to. The judge had to interview me and make sure that I I understood what was happening. Mm-hmm. and everything and you know I was up there for like one minute and he's like okay you're not like a little kid like you know do you have any questions I was like no he's like all right you know you're good get out of here so that was it and um that um that lawsuit is how or that paid for MIT that paid for MIT yeah that paid for grad school too but um yeah so that was my so what our mutual friend Tim calls my volleyball scholarship and it paid for um when I got an MBA later too so that's interesting. So your high school paid for your college. <laughs> yeah, my high school's insurance company. Yeah. <laughs> hey, right. But you know, I guess at, at at the same time, right? You you ended up hurt, right? You didn't go to the college that you wanted to go to, right? With the Air Force Academy. Yeah. But I guess everything kind of was meant to be. Oh yeah, absolutely. Right? Like it, my the experience in college, I I wouldn't trade it for the world. It it fit me culturally. It fit me. Perfectly, I met my wife at and MIT. That, that's yeah. She was a year behind me. Mm-hmm. Um, she she was a seventeen year old freshman, and I, I met her. <laughs> so she was a really smart one then. Huh? She pursued okay. me for the record, but um, <laughs> as did my wife. We could talk about that too. <laughs> so yeah, it's a couple of hot commodities. Here. See, look um, at this. But um, yeah, it, it all it really did work out for a reason, and it was for the best. So, do you think about that a lot? Like, do you think about um, like the the slightest little decisions that happen in your life? You getting injured, not getting into the Air Force Academy, ending up in MIT, meeting your wife, having children. Do you do you think about like the littlest things that, that really impact your life like that? I do. Uh, and I also, it's a lot of, you know, the life that we live feels kind of inevitable. Like it, it, it part of me feels like I almost would have just ended up in the same spot doing this right now because that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. I know it starts to get very like weird and philosophical, but I, I think about it, but not in to the extent, I don't think of a lot of like, oh no, what ifs? Or like, am I in the right path? You mm-hmm. know, I uh, just give you another example. Um, so, you know, working with you at Hennessy Digital, I've had, since college, I've had like five main jobs, like five Real jobs. They've been in five different industries. Mm-hmm. I've I've had really five different jobs in five different industries. And I remember when I started talking to you about this role, and I was talking to some some friends and some you know mentor types, and they would say like, "Oh, like, but you know, that's not what you've done. They're like, that's just very different." I was like, "Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and that, but that's what I want to do." And um, and the people who know me well know like, yeah, Scott's just gonna kind of like. Do what he does. Do what he does. Yeah, and mm-hmm. um, you know, like I, any any of my my past jobs or my past adventures have just been, they've all they've all been me. Like they've all felt very consistent with me. So like I, I've never felt like oh I'm doing something weird or or out of the norm. It feels feels inevitable or mm-hmm. feels right. 
Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I feel as though, you know, your life is going to happen, right? Yeah. And you just kind of act it out, Yeah. right? You know, decisions that you make will lead to things. And then at the end of the day, you'll be able to like picture it all together like a puzzle. Right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So who do you say had the most influence on your life? One, If you had to pick one person. If I had to pick one person, oh, man. Um, I'd say my dad, because I, like I was describing earlier, you know, somebody, you know, not college educated, uh, the way he, and I didn't realize this when I was a kid, but, but especially in retrospect as an adult, he just moved his way up just by learning and and working hard and just being so valuable, like that they needed him. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? They just, they couldn't function without him. And then eventually to the point where he was just running the, the whole operation without a formal education like that. Sometimes when I get a little intimidated by something and I absolutely, I'm in my mid forties, I absolutely still get intimidated by new challenges. I'm like, oh, I've never done this. I don't know. And I think about, well, my dad just taught himself everything. Hmm. So I can, and I'm half him. So I can do that. So I probably my father. Yeah. Dad. Okay. Most embarrassing childhood memory. Oh man. Well, it wasn't running in the plate glass. Let me think. Most embarrassing (laughs) childhood memory. Hmm. (laughs) Uh, I remember one time, um, I was coming, uh, or I was on the bus okay. for school, going to school. And the, the bus, I think probably there was like a detour on the road. So the bus took a uh, like a different turn than normal. I was probably six or seven years old at the time. And um, just when that bus made a turn, I thought, oh my God, we're all being kidnapped. <laughs> and I just started hysterically crying Wow. And uh, in and asking for my mom and dad, and when I got to the school, they had to like the teachers had to like surround me and were like, "He's having an episode. What's wrong with him?" But I just had so convinced myself that we were being kidnapped because the bus <laughs> took a slightly different path to school. And, wow! Uh, some kids, I think, um, always remembered that about me, so that, that was probably my most embarrassing moment. Yeah, if, if that's kind of like pegged to Scott, right? When you think yeah. of Scott, he was thinking he's getting a, kidnapped, right? Yeah, the bus took a left and Scott flipped out. Okay, so you're in your car by yourself driving home from our beautiful studio here in Hollywood, California. Taylor Swift comes on. Do you flip the station or do you turn it up and jam out? Flip the station. Flip the station. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I'm more, I, so I listen to Sirius XM. I listen to Lithium. I mean, I'm, I'm like an old fuddy daddy now. I've got my Spotify playlist that I listen to. Like I'm not, I don't know anything about new music. <laughs> I'm listening to my eighties music and my nineties music from seventies. Yeah, it's so it's always fun. You're driving in a car, you see like a grown adult jamming out, and you're always wondering what the heck are they I do that. Like, out I, I sing in the car, right? It's not not Taylor Swift. It's not Taylor Swift, right? It's nothing against her. What was the last concert that you went to? Oh man, last year, right before the world shut down. So there's a live music venue near my house called the Canyon Club. Mm-hmm. It was. Uh, the lead singer of Fountains of Wayne. Yeah. Like my favorite band. Stacy's mom, um, right? Yeah, that's their known song. Yeah. They have a lot of songs. Mm-hmm. Um, the lead singer of Everclear and two other bands. It was like for those four guys uh, do like kind of a storytelling thing where they like play some songs, tell stories, and the audience can ask them questions. And they play each other's songs and just sort of jam and, and it's cool. That, that was the last show that I went to. So something fascinating about Scott that some of you may not know is that Scott is a major Jeopardy champ. 
I mean, like <laughs> he went all the way to the end and actually won the game. And not only did he win the game, he also did it while Alex Trebek was still hosting, right? Yeah. Well, first of all, you're too kind. Major Jeopardy champ. <laughs> a one-time Jeopardy champ. But yeah, I'm very proud of that. Um, that's right. Yeah. So I we taped that in late August of 2020. And uh, about two months later, uh, Alex Trebek uh, stopped recording, I think, at the end of October of 2020. Actually, his last day of taping was the day that my second episode aired nationally. And that was, yeah, that was oh, it. Wow. And he was dead like 10, 11 days later. Oh, my. Yeah. Tell me, what was that whole experience like, you know, from kind of yeah. auditioning to getting the call to going down? Like, tell, tell me how, how that went down. So I started, I could go way back. I started trying to get on Jeopardy back in the early 90s when I was in high school. And, and back then you would send in postcards to try to get on and never heard a peep from them, never, never got a response. And then sometime in the the 2000s, maybe the early 2010s, they transitioned to an online test that you could do this 50 question quiz uh, that they would do that a couple of times a year. I would faithfully do it every time. You don't know how you did. You don't know how you did relative to anybody else. I would never hear anything back. Always would do this. Then in early 2020, it was uh, early in the pandemic. Uh, after doing one of those tests, I got an email inviting me to the next step. I was like, oh my God, oh my God. So, uh, and of course, you know, it being the pandemic, it was a Zoom uh, audition. And so the next step was a one-on-one -on -one interview uh, with this woman. If you watch Jeopardy, they have these two people who are the clue crew. Like the, they're the people who like stand in front of the pyramids in Egypt and introduce a clue. Mm -hmm. uh, Sarah from the clue crew did like a, like a 10 minute interview with me. You were probably starstruck just by her. Yeah, immediately. Yeah. I just started laughing. I said, yeah. I don't know who you are. And uh, I did the next 50, uh, 50 question quiz which was like on Zoom. It was, she wasn't delivering it, but so we did that. She interviewed me some more and it ended. Again, you don't know how you did. You're like, I don't know. I think that went fine. I don't know. And mm -hmm. then I forgot all about it. Uh, a couple of months later, I get an email inviting me to the next step, which mm -hmm. is another audition on Zoom. And that one was in a group. Uh, there were maybe 15 of us and they would take us three at a time and we would play a mini version of Jeopardy uh, just for like a couple minutes. They just wanted to see, do you get the game? It didn't matter sure. how many you got right or wrong. Uh, did that. It seemed fine. They do a mini interview to make sure you're not a bore. It every, again, seemed to go fine. I forgot all about it. Another couple of months passed. And then in early August of, uh, 2020, my phone rang. It was an LA number. I was like, eh, I'll pick that up. And it was Jeopardy saying, Hey, you're going to be on Jeopardy in two weeks. How cool they, is that? they just give you the date and, you know, be there or be square. Who was the first person you told? Uh, I ran downstairs and just like announced it. And <laughs> it, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> my wife, Anita, and our two kids, they all just heard it. And uh, I just blurted it out. And um, yeah. And that's a show that you've been watching for like since you were a kid, right? Yeah. I thought about it at the time and I estimated that I've seen over 4,000 episodes going back to the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and do they ever repeat questions on that show? They don't repeat questions exactly, but there is a finite amount of stuff. Okay. You know what I mean? You might get some Shakespeare questions that if you go back seven years, it's like, oh, they basically asked that same question. In just a different way. Yeah. And so how do you even, I know knowing that you watch the show, so that's mm -hmm. partially training, but how do you even train or practice for like a show like that? So 
from when I got the call to when I was going to be on air was only two weeks. So I didn't have a lot of time, okay. to, but I did two things. One, um, there's a guy named James Holtower, who's like one of the all-time winningest Jeopardy guys. Mm. He He's a major Jeopardy. <laughs> yeah, he's a major Jeopardy champion. I'm a, I'm a small-time Jeopardy champion. He uh, recommended a book that he read before he went on Jeopardy. It just It's called like, the, the Secrets of the Jeopardy Buzzer. It's just a whole book devoted to the wow. Jeopardy Buzzer. I mean, it's really more of a pamphlet. but uh-huh. So I immediately bought that book and read it. Uh, and you learn the optimal. This guy tested the optimal way to hold the buzzer. So hmm. I, I used the, that way of doing it. Uh, the other thing I did in that short amount of time is I just tried to bone up on some categories that I knew are weaknesses for me just to try to, like, I knew I wasn't going to get from poor to expert, but I would just try to get from poor to like not embarrass myself. Sure. So some basic um, Shakespeare things, uh, European and uh, British royalty, uh, a good cat- a good one to just sort of try to commit to memory is world capitals and bodies of water. So you just learn, you know, the longest rivers in Asia and what mm-hmm. are the the capitals in South America things like that. So I just spent those two weeks trying to bone up on that stuff. And that was it. And then, but really it's kind of just all the crap you've accumulated in your head over, you know, in my case, the first 44 years of your life before yeah. I went on air. You told me a story about how just kind of going to Chicago and taking the architecture tour was. Uh... <laughs> yeah. So my, my wife and I, we lived in Chicago for six years. And so the game that I won, the final Jeopardy, the category was awards and honorees the final Jeopardy clue was he used his 1983 Pritzker prize money to fund a scholarship for students from China to study their profession. Uh-huh. And, you know, then the music starts playing and I'm like, Pritzker prize, Pritzker prize, crap, what the hell is the Pritzker prize? <laughs> and I was winning going in the final Jeopardy, but, uh, you know, I was like, I have to get this right if I want to win. Sure. And then suddenly it just popped in my head, Pritzker prizes for architecture and and we'd lived in Chicago for a long time. I recommended that Chicago boat tour to you, you did. the architecture tour. I think it was somewhere in there that that's why I knew what the Pritzker Prize was. So then the Pritzker Prize popped in my head and immediately I was like, okay, like modern architect, he's Chinese male. It's got to be I.M. Pei. That's the only architect I know who, who fits uh-huh. that description. So I wrote down who is I.M. Pei and I got it right. And you went big, right? Yeah. Um I had so I had seventeen thousand eight hundred uh, going into Final Jeopardy. My the opponent, my opponent, the returning champ had twelve thousand. The mm-hmm. other person had bombed out before Final Jeopardy. She had yeah. negative. So um, I knew I had to at least I had to beat twenty four thousand if he was going to double his money. Uh-huh. So I bet sixty three hundred, and I ended up winning twenty four thousand one hundred. That's amazing. And so what when you first get there, right? And you're mm-hmm. like, it's like surreal. You're like on set. Yeah. And in walks Alex Trebek, right? I mean, were you like nervous or confident? How are you feeling? You know what's so funny? Of that that experience that day, playing the, the two games that I played, I remember maybe 20% of it. Sure. You just I, just, I don't even remember it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the game happens so fast. Like the the clues come, you get if you happen to ring in and get it right, you just immediately pick another clue and you're just flying. You don't even you're not even aware of the scores. You're you're barely aware of what's going on. Mm. Um, Trebek himself was awesome. And you, you had a little bit of interaction with him, but he basically, the music would start playing and you didn't see him. And then he would just come out and say a few words and the game starts and that's it. Like he's, mm. you're off to the races. But it, it, I felt like fourth, after 4,000 episodes, I got the game and I knew what to do. 
uh, and I felt very comfortable. That's awesome. And everybody that knows you saw it back home. You yeah. were a star for a couple of days. I have a, a funny Trebek story. So mm-hmm. he, they do those little interviews uh, during after the first commercial break, and he interviewed me about improvisational comedy. And by the way, you don't know what he's going to interview you on. You give them five topics. You have to come up with five interesting things. He, he can ask any one of them. You don't know what he's going to ask. So he asked me about improv comedy and, and asked, uh, you know, don't you uh, have a lot of jokes up your sleeve? Like, don't you kind of cheat? And I said, no, on, you know, honestly, it's truly improvised. And then we went on, we finished the round. Then you go to commercial break. Alex just started talking to me again about improv. He's hmm. like, really? You don't have canned jokes? I would have canned jokes. That's amazing. But I was like, oh my God, Alex Rebecca is like Jiving honestly interested in my story. Cool. He kept talking to me. It was so cool. Uh-huh. He was terrific. So based on that, if you haven't guessed already, Scott, we're going to play a version of Jeopardy. Okay. Right? And this is where you're going to be able to show off your vast trivia skills and knowledge. Right on. Of course, showcase that silky sweet voice of yours. You in? I'm totally in. I, I Trust me. Like I said, I've been training all my life for this. That's so <laughs> the one thing I'm good at. All right. So, but also... You may have guessed that we're going to play our Jeopardy version, but it's got a little extra spice. Okay. Today at Hennessy Studios, for an audio audience only, no cameras, please, you're going to engage in a yet sophisticated version of Strip Jeopardy. Okay. So instead of getting points for correct answers, you'll have to remove an article of clothing for every incorrect answer. Okay. So I hope you I hope you brought some layers here today. Is it too arrogant to say I like my chances? <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. But for real, jokes aside, let's put the witty, the clever, the uber smart Scott Shrum to the test to see how many trivia questions he can get right of these very oh so tricky 30 or so hmm. that I have here. 30. In my hand. Whoa. I should have worn layers and layers of mittens and <laughs> earmuffs and everything. All right. So these are the categories, Scott. You're not going to do the Jeopardy music? We probably don't have the rights oh, for the that. Hill? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe we can do something. <laughs> All right. So here's the categories okay. that you get to choose from. Double talk, play on words. Who's the boss? Okay. Weird town names. Mm-hmm. Epic rap battles of history speakers. Let's start with who's the boss. All right. So you have 100, 200, 300, 400, and 500. Let's start with 100. This Facebook boss once had I'm CEO bitch on his business card. Who is Mark Zuckerberg? Let's take uh, the same category for 200. There's debate as to whether this English boss recent 50 mile trip counts as losing his space virginity who is richard branson uh 300 this quantum chemist is sometimes described as the de facto leader of europe who is angela merkel i'm impressed let's do 400 this rapper served as boss of Def Jam recordings from 2004 to 2007. Ooh. 
Um, who is P. Diddy? I would have guessed that too. No, I got it wrong. What was it? It's Jay-Z. Oh. Well, hold on a second. You got to take off an article of clothing. Oh. All right. All right. So we'll do <laughs> it's that It's not again. so easy here, man. Okay. Oh. <laughs> take off my hoodie? There you go. Okay. I dressed like Mark Zuckerberg, but now the hoodie's coming off. <laughs> this Enron founder was still the boss when it collapsed in 2001. Who is Jeff Skilling? It's not it? It says, who is Lay? All right, what are my remaining categories? You've got double talk, play on words, epic rap battles of history speakers, weird town names. Let's do double talk. A cartoon version of a Roman emperor uses this slogan to sell pepperoni pies. What is pizza pizza? Nice job. Let's do double talk for 200. Also known as the common dolphin fish, its name comes from the Hawaiian for very strong. What is mahi-mahi? Dance frequently done by a line of dancers to the music of Orpheus in the underworld. What is the can-can? He's currently serving a life sentence for his 1968 assassination of a presidential candidate. Who is Sirhan Sirhan? Pretty good, man. You still got a lot of clothing on here. Yeah. All right. Uh, 500. Washington State's second largest prison is at the ominous address of 1313 North 13th in this small city. What is Walla Walla? <laughs> that's freaking impressive. See, that's an example of one that I, I don't know the answer, but when you watch Not Chef Jeopardy, like you just sort of Connected. triangulate it. Like, oh, I know there's a town in Washington called Walla Walla. I'm going to go with that. Like, I didn't uh, know it. I see. That was a guess. You seem pretty confident, though. You got to sell it. All right. So we've got epic rap battles of history speakers, weird town names. Well, I'm really feeling myself after Walla Walla. So let's go with weird town names. Let's hope I could pronounce some of this stuff. Zix. The alphabetically last town name in the United States of America is located in this state. It's spelled Z-Z-Y-Z-X. What is California? Yeah, I've seen yeah, that. Yeah, we see that. Drive from Vegas. Route f- uh, the 15 yeah, going to Vegas and back to Zizek's Road. Yeah. I would get that one right. Yeah. A one-letter town name, A, with a little circle on top, is located in this country. What is Sweden? Norway. Ah, okay. I didn't. I didn't know. I just right. guessed something Scandinavian. All right. Take off your watch. Oh. <laughs> sure. If that counts, if that counts as an article of clothing, I'll take it. I'll make it count. In 2010, this town briefly swapped names with Google. Ooh. Uh, what is Mountain View? Topeka, Kansas. See, you'd think I would know something like that. Topeka, Kansas. His wedding ring came off. Sorry, honey. <laughs> Maybe in Saturday Night Live, Celebrity Jeopardy, Sean Connery was asking Mademoiselle to see a mispronunciation of this Lancaster County, Pennsylvania town, or maybe not. Mm, there's a few funny town names in that. I don't know it. Lidditz? Oh, Latitz now. L-I-T-I-T-Z. Latitz. <laughs> but you know what? Pennsylvania has intercourse. It has uh, blue balls. 
Uh, what? The th- yeah. They have towns like that? Yeah. Are you serious? In, in Pennsylvania. Yeah. All right. Took a shoe off. <laughs> His left shoe came off for those that are listening. To promote tourism, and this is 500. To promote tourism, this Welsh town decided to make its name the longest place name in Europe. <laughs> like I'm gonna know that. this isn't even fair. Like you, you can't right, even I'll pronounce this. <laughs> take my other shoe off. Da, da, da. Okay, what was it? I want you to try to pronounce that. Oh come on! <laughs> oh my god! I'll let you put your shoe back on. <laughs> if I can't pronounce it, then that shouldn't count. Thank God. Okay. And this is the last category. Epic rap battles of history speakers. I've been, I've been avoiding this one. This one sounds bad. All right. So this is a web series depicting historical figures rapping against each other. You must identify the historical figure who is portrayed as speaking the lines. Okay. Okay. I keep my rhymes pure like my food and drugs and I'll bust a trust fund lush with my American muscles. Hmm. I'm not getting it. I don't know. (laughs) They named a teddy bear after him. Named a teddy bear after him. (laughs) Didn't they name a teddy bear after Theodore Roosevelt? (laughs) For 200. We'll take your other stuff off. (laughs) Getting dicey here. All right. You need to take control of your life you're given. They call me Ubermensch because I'm so driven. You need to take control of your life you're given. They call me Ubermensch because I'm so driven. Frederick Nietzsche. Yes. Okay. I think uh, you did pretty well. You still have your <laughs> wah, pants wah, on. Wah. You still have your shirt on, and you uh, you did well. Way better than I would have done. All right, so we're gonna play one more game. You know, I think we know each other pretty well from a business perspective uh, and a professional level. You know, we've worked together for a couple of years now, but I think I'd like to give our listeners a little bit more of Scott Trum. You know, with a game that we're going to play called Never Have I Ever. Have you ever played this? I don't think so. Not not the card game version, at least. Pretty simple game. We both have 10 cards. You have to an- answer the question honestly. Okay. You get three passes, and then the first one to seven with a truthful answer wins. Okay. Am I close down? <laughs> I'm asking. Yes. Clo- okay, cool. All yeah, right. There's no no taking off any clothes. I'm here in business. This one. You're okay. good to go here. So uh, I will go first here. Worked at a kid's birthday party. Absolutely. So I was a, a DJ when I was young, all the way up until like my 20s, basically. And so I worked at many kids' birthday parties as the DJ. So that was a pretty easy one for me. Was that a good job? Like, did you enjoy it? Loved it. Oh, it was like the coolest job ever. I was 16 years old, going to Sweet 16s every Friday and Saturday night. (laughs) How awesome is that? Getting free food, gourmet food, getting to meet girls that were my age around, you know, it was like the coolest job ever. And I got paid. Nice. On top of that. All right. Been hammered at a movie theater. I have never been hammered at a movie theater. (laughs) 
I don't think I have either. Do they, do they even? I guess some of them now, like movie tavern, like oh nowadays yeah, nowadays they that's have a that. big thing. But yeah. back when we were growing up, yeah, like, they didn't have that. No, unless you got hammered ha before you went to the movie theater, right? Can't say I've ever been hammered at a movie theater. Okay, done a keg stand. Who hasn't? That's one of the things that we did when we visited my buddy at a uh, at a college. <laughs> the same buddy that also gave me the mushroom. Man, talk about a bad influence this kid was. Yeah, we we've done keg stands there. So <laughs> that is yes. All right, my next one. Ran out of the office to have diarrhea somewhere else. Ooh. I'm going to say no, although I, I can come close. I one time I was this is in my last job. Uh, I was in a meeting and somebody was talking about something, and I just said, "I'm sorry, I don't care about this." <laughs> and I just got up and walked out. And uh, from when you walked out of our our door to our suite, you would just you were outside, and I just walked up to a bush and threw <laughs> up in this bush twice, just like two like large volumes threw up. So uh, that that's as close as I've come. Got it. So you never had an accident down, like never had an accident in the back of your pants? No, not like, not like while I've been like a grown ass man. You know? <laughs> I don't think I've ever, I, I was with a friend that, that did once. Oh. We, we were working on like a, like he had a job and he was delivering like sodas or something. He's like, man, I got to go so bad. I don't know what to do, man. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, I got I got He goes, I think I just went a little. <laughs> oh, Jesus. And then he goes, I just went a lot. He's like, oh my God, what do I do now? And I'm like, oh, dude, I don't know. Go to the bathroom. Oh. Yeah, that has never happened to me, but I was with somebody when it happened, oh, which brutal. is kind of not fun to watch. Danced drunk on the top of furniture. Uh, no, I don't think I've ever danced drunk on the top of furniture. I've danced drunk, but not in that setting. <laughs> All right, let's see. Opened a beer with my teeth. Wow, I'm not that much of a man. <laughs> so, no, I don't think I've ever done that. You still have all your teeth. So. I still have all my teeth. Wow. Do people even do that? Oh, that's hardcore. I have opened beer with my ring. That's like a trick, right? You just kind of like pop it and it just kind of yeah, opens. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I've opened like cheese sticks for my kids with my teeth. <laughs> I guess I've opened a beer with my teeth. <laughs> Worn Reebok pumps. Yes. I was just actually, I am not even lying, man. I will show you this right now. Those are so fresh. So we have a mutual buddy. Um, his name is Alex Valencia. It's so random that this question would come up. And so I was texting Alex because I bought a bunch of shoes. I was at the sneaker store recently and I was buying a bunch of shoes. And um, I shit you not. Like I texted him saying, I just got the new Reebok pumps right there. There's a picture on my phone. You can verify yeah, it. Yeah. I was kind of kidding. I just was being a little bit nostalgic, but that's funny that this would come up here just like that. Oh, I remember in high school, the first kid who had those, he was like right. a celebrity. Coolest yeah. kid in the whole school, man. Rocking those Reebok pumps. All right. Made breakfast for someone in bed. Yes. Yes, I have done this. I've done this actually. Um, for my wife and for my kids when they haven't been feeling well. Oh, yeah. See, you're a good, good husband and a good, good father. Gambled my rent money. 
so I had a time where I was like pretty addicted to sports betting for a while, but it wasn't rent money. I guess it'd be mortgage money <laughs> back in those <laughs> days when I was young and I had a couple houses and so I had multiple houses. So, and I had, you know, I didn't probably have enough money at the time to kind of carry all of the houses at once. So I guess I was kind of feeding into mortgage money when I was gambling back in those <laughs> days. That was after your keg stand. Yes. I did that. Uh, gone a year without changing the Brita filter. Oh. <laughs> I don't think so. No, I'm, I'm kind of like a by the book kind of guy. Like <laughs> yeah, if, I could yeah, see that. <laughs> yeah. No, that sounds gross. I've never done that. Had sex on the first date. I have had sex on the first date. Yes, I've. that's pretty easy. Look at you. Eating something out of the garbage. I have definitely done that. Yeah. <laughs> what was it? Um, so this actually just happened. Like in the <laughs> something last couple that weeks. you do currently. Okay. Um, <laughs> it wasn't when you were drunk at the movie I'm, theater. I'm nibbling on something out of the garbage right now. Um, uh, so just this just happened. Like in the past week, uh, we were at In and Out, and I took all the stuff. We were kind of done, and then I th I threw everything in the trash, and then my daughter said, "What? No, those fries. We, we were still eating them." <laughs> and then I looked in, and I was like, "Well, they're just kind of sitting on top, and like they're not really touching anything." Yeah. So I just I pulled them out. And we just kept eating. <laughs> so, yeah, in and out fries, you can't yeah. like throw those out. I've also, I think I've I've fished pizza crusts out of the garbage. Have and you? I'm not like it's not like something that's been in there for three days. But I'm like, uh, like, you know what? No, I'm gonna nibble on that. I'll pull it out. I had a friend that had this weird thing where he would only eat four French fries at a time. Oh. And so, like, he'd have to pick up four French fries and eat it. And then if he came down, he had, like, three left. He would throw it out. Like, that was just, like, his superstition. That is that's full-blown yeah. OCD. Yeah, it totally Jeez. was. Yeah. So, we're tied at 6'6 six, six right now. Okay. Take an Adderall to be the most productive person ever. So, I, I've tried Adderall one time. Somebody gave it to me. And I just want to see, like, what was this whole thing about? Um, and it's like the weirdest thing, man. Like you take it and like you go to the bathroom and your whole pupils are dilated. Like they're just like huge. And the next thing you know, you're just talking to everybody, man. Like I was at a conference. It was like one of the legal conferences <laughs> and I'm like really tired. And Paul, a mutual friend, I won't say last names, <laughs> gave me this thing. He's like, here, why don't you try one of these? And I'm like, okay. Right. And I'm like, will it wake me up? Yeah. Okay. And then sure enough, man, I was talking to every, I, I should do that. I, I drummed up so much business because of that pill. You know, I know who you're talking about. And this person, Paul, zips around conferences like a dragonfly. Now I understand why. <laughs> <laughs> fallen off a boat. Ah, uh, no, I've never fallen off a boat. Although I fell off a dock into the Charles River in, in the pitch black one time when, when I was in college. <laughs> and I like almost drowned. Yeah. Did somebody have to jump in to try to save you or what? Um, they couldn't even see me because it was so dark, but huh. I was able to like, put, I got the wind knocked out of me when it happened, but I was able, I ended up being able to pull myself back up. But huh. um, that was actually a little scary. Yeah. No, I've never fallen off a boat. Given a homeless person money just because they had a dog. 
I don't know if I've given them money just because they have a dog, but sometimes you see homeless people out there and they've got like, they're in a wheelchair, they got one leg and they got a dog and you kind of feel bad for the person, but you also kind of feel bad for the dog, right? Because I didn't really choose that life. Yeah. And so sometimes I will, uh, you know, donate both to the dog and to the human being that's with the dog. So... That's tough. When I see the pet within that, tugs on my heart strings. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> set my hair on fire. What am I, Richard Pryor? No, I've never set my hair on fire. <laughs> <laughs> Called in sick because I was hung over. Oh, I used to do that like once a week <laughs> when I was like in high school, man. <laughs> yep. I've done it. You had a more fun high school experience than I did. <laughs> Got sucked into a pyramid scheme. Oh, my. No, I'm not, I can't say I've ever been you. You're very scheme. like skeptical about yeah. stuff like that, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. No, not my cup of tea. All right. So it's a tie here. It comes down to this last question here. Created a fake Twitter or Facebook account to stalk another person. I've never created another fake Twitter account to stalk somebody. I have created fake Twitter accounts before to try to get in touch with uh, different people, but never to stalk anybody. So your definition of stalking goes around. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Lost a fist fight. Oh God. You know, I think in my life I'm one and oh in fist fight. I'm not like, I was never really a fighter, but mm-hmm. like the one time I got into a fight, I won. What was I that won. like? What grade was this in? And what um, the heck did the kid do? Um, you're not going to believe this story. (laughs) I was in second grade and the kid was, I think in seventh grade. What? And it was on the school bus. And, um, like I had, I was this little kid with this impossibly large backpack and this kid who was way bigger. And we were all, it was a Catholic school where it was like K through eighth grade all on one bus. So you Mm -hmm. had, you know, we were really big kids next to really small kids. And I got up as we were getting off the bus and this huge kid pushed me over and I tipped over and I got up and, you know, the backpack was like no longer on my back. And I just jumped up and poof, I <laughs> nailed him so hard. <laughs> and he like, he kind of like staggered and then just got like so embarrassed that he ran off the bus and everybody was like laughing. Oh, And he just, he never messed with me again. I, that was barely a fist fight. But, I was uh, waiting for like the Christmas story, uh, you know. <laughs> oh, like Scott Farkas, I just unloaded just, on him. Yeah. No, I was kind of just like one blow. I mean, a second grader. I mean, how hard was of I hitting? Of course, yeah. Um, and he, he ran away and he was just like permanently embarrassed by that story. <laughs> So then I was, um, yeah, I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of a badass. And then that was it. <laughs> Don't so, mess with this second. So I'm, I'm calling it one and oh. Well, I'm going to say that you won because the Twitter, the Facebook Twitter account was kind of a dodgy kind <laughs> of answer. A little dicey so there. I will give you <laughs> Thank this you. game here. So there you go. Since you drove all the way down here, I do have a gift for you. And, uh, and this is a gift that you um, played a major part in and um, because you went to the COO Alliance and there was a thing called the Big Idea Calculator. Yep. And it was like line four on the Big Idea Calculator. And you basically, what was the Big Idea Calculator? What was that? So when we get together for the COO Alliance events run by Cameron Harold, <clears throat> he gives you this Big Idea Calculator for every Every time an idea occurs to you or you hear somebody else say something, you're like, oh, that 
that could have a big impact on my business, write it down. Mm-hmm. And then you try to quantify it. And you just sort of like, oh, that's a $10,000 idea or that's a $2 million idea. Mm-hmm. And one of the ideas uh, that for some reason came up during the course of our conversations when I was at that event was you writing the book. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote it down. And I was like, I got to talk to Jason. Because I think at the time we were, we kept like, we were like going to do it and we didn't do it. We were interviewing we were a couple people, man. We were like, right. yeah, should we do it? There should some, we wait? Yeah. Right. There were uh-huh. some false starts. And then I was like, no, we got to just do this. This is a no brainer. Yeah. Yeah. That was And so that was the, you know, uh, it was, I guess, accountability. It was, really was. It was like, and then what happened was, you had to put that in an envelope and send it to me. Right, yeah. And so I received <laughs> it, I like, what is this? And it said, like, number seven, right? Jason needs to write a book. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess we'll get started. And so we ended up uh, engaging the company Scribe to help us out. It was published under Lion's Crest. And 18 months later, we now have a physical hard copy book here. And so thank, thank you. you for thank that. Thank you man. so much. It's signed in there for you and awesome. everything. I've got my uh, another physical copy coming from Amazon. But oh, now, yeah, well, now, now you can re- leave me a review. Yeah, so, that's see? right. There it is. I'm a verified buyer. Thank you. Well, Scott, I sincerely appreciate you coming into the studio, uh, and uh, it was really fascinating. I I've known you for probably five years now, maybe a little bit more, but it was uh, interesting to kind of learn a little bit more about your childhood and. Like I can see you going back to your childhood. Your eyes were lighting up, you know, when you got into MIT, like you were reliving that moment. And it was fascinating to watch. So it's thank a you. highlight for sure. Thanks, Jason. Yeah. Appreciate you being on the show. This has been the Jason Hennessy podcast. This show has been produced by Whitney Welsh, engineered and edited by Josh Fisher and recorded at Hennessy Studios. Please be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. 